Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. And thank you so much for having some patience with me. Uh, I know it took a little bit of time to get another episode out to you guys. We just bought a new house and, you know, the moving process and all that. It was nice to... uh, Take the week off and kind of get caught up around here. But uh, anyways, got a great episode lined out for you today. I'm not going to spend too much time on the intro. Uh, this guy's name is Scott. He's also the host of the Anti-War Podcast. And this dude just has a spectacular story to tell. Uh, all around really great guy. And I hope you enjoy listening to Scott share why he is anti-war. So here is Scott. Kristen, bring him in. Mine... I'm not explicitly libertarian in mind. I try to not avoid it, but, uh, you know, if it comes out, it comes out, but it's mainly my, you know, um, it, it, that, but the themes are there and my guests are mostly libertarians thus far. So, you know, you're, you're people that I have friends and people that are progressive that are listening that, you know, are, are maybe getting hints of the message, you know, um, That's, and that it, any little bit helps, man. Get get your foot in the door just a, a little bit with them. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I'm old enough to remember when the progressives were rapidly anti-war. Yeah, you know, yeah, and there's still some, and there still are some. That's how I've got my hooks in with a few people. Like, hey, you know, this is, you know, and I'm not preaching libertarianism at, at all. But you know, if they kind of be like, well, this guy's not so bad, and you know, anti like there's some strong, there's some of the strongest anti-war voices there are are libertarians now. There's some great progressive anti-war voices, you know, but uh, there's Danny Scherzen and Barbara Lee and whatnot, but um, and uh, Jimmy Dore, you know, yeah, but um, but we've got a pretty good group on our end too that and and you know, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, man, uh, it, I think. And it's been weird watching Jimmy Dore kind of progress along his route because it seems like, you know, more and more his audience is eating him alive, you know, the further down the rabbit hole he goes. But mm-hmm. I think that that draws kind of some some lines there that it's like, you know, opening some people's eyes that, yeah. hey, man, you know, principled means something. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, let's 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 get into let's get into your story. So, like, how what what are you about? Uh, so, I mean. Uh, you know, in some ways, I, I think what I'm about has never changed, except maybe become more deep and and radical might be the word for it, but more deep and well founded, um, and more uh, strong. I I guess there's some things that have changed, but basically, I mean, my I'm a I've become slowly over time a hardcore Rothbardian anarchist, and and um, and my biggest and you know. Rothbard and others have said that, you know, war is the health of the state. War is the most, the, the worst part of what the government does. Um, I came to that from kind of a strange position where, um, where I started as, you know, kind of a run of the mill neocon, maybe with a little bit more of a paleo constitutionalist bent. I was right. My father was a, a Jefferson worshiper, founders worship kind of guy. Um, and I grew up in a, in a, you know, not, not really extremely, I mean, conservative household, but not, you know, not, I think crazy, but I do remember my father kind of there being hints of, there's some partisanship in it. Like he's against wars and he was against some of Clinton's wars and against Obama's wars, but okay with other ones, you know, so there was a little bit of partisanship to it, but there was this streak of, well, you know, we need, 
Clinton can't just bomb because he's getting on a, on a, on a trial with Monica Lewinsky. He's got to have a constitutional authorization for that kind of stuff. I remember. So there were hints before some skepticism that war was politically motivated, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I grew up with kind of a standard, like, you know, um, conservative upbringing. I remember thinking, you know, we have to, we've got to bomb them over there. And I was very, 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 my father was just a Vietnam veteran. He wasn't drafted and his father worked for NATO, um, as a logistics, like exact, like high up, like, um, civilian side, but at the general level logistic, uh, for NATO in the eighties, seventies and eighties. So, um, so I grew up with it kind of steeped in that. And I always was raised and my, raised with this, like, you've got to serve, but everyone in my, my family basically had been a government employee, you know, okay. was one of the things my, my mother's father had worked at NASA as like something above a custodian, but building maintenance kind of workshop stuff, but working for the government. I grew up around DC, you know, that's right. what people do around DC. Yeah. yeah it's the, Everyone the there I knew was either in the Navy, at the worked at the Naval Academy, worked uh, for a shipbuilding engineer something like that. Um, my father was a DOD fraud investigator, um, which is interesting too. Um, and just steeped in that. So my father raised me with this belief that you have to contribute. You have to give something back to society. Definitely like this civil service oriented, but like, but never, ever, ever. And this is still something I have the hardest time getting past now was it considered that serving people is something you can do outside of government employment. You know what I mean? The only way to serve or give to your community was to work for the government in some capacity, you know? So that was a strange part to be a conservative, but be raised believing that, you know, um, in retrospect, you know, that, um, so I grew up with that and I grew up really, really, really worshiping military. I grew up in the Naval Academy, like right outside the Naval Academy. Um, I watched Top Gun to the point where I had the lines memorized. I carried around. We we did this thing called sponsoring a midshipman, where if you go to um, the kids that go to military academies are relatively far from home. I mean, most college kids are, but their life is a little bit more different. They don't have access to something. So you could sponsor one and you could basically be their home away from home when they can get when they can only go away for an eight hour day, they can't go home to their on the weekend to their parents, to do their laundry. They can come to your house and do their laundry and maybe have a home cooked meal kind of stuff. Um, and it so happened that one of the midshipmen we sponsored was uh, a Korean exchange student from the Korean Navy. And um, he definitely needed more familial support being, you know, halfway across the world. And yeah. I, and they have these things in the Naval Academy called a rate book. Then fre- the plebes, the freshmen, have to memorize the thrust to weight ratio of an F-14 Tomcat. How many pounds of energy does the engine put out and and how much does the aircraft weigh? And I would just sit there and memorize this stuff as a third grader. You know what I mean? Wow. Um, I could tell you what different types of weapon each aircraft could carry. I was a lunatic about it. I was just obsessed with airplanes. You know, kids, some kids are dinosaurs. I was airplanes, airplanes, yeah. airplanes, airplanes. That's all I wanted to do was be a Navy pilot. Um, come middle school, it becomes apparent that my vision's going bad. And this is before laser eye surgery is an option. So I, I start like my father just has a candid talk. And he's like, look, you're never going to be a fighter pilot. You know what I mean? You're not going to be a pilot. The military is not going to have anybody without perfect vision, you know? Um, oh, man. 
Yeah. So, well, I just kind of, he, and it transitioned me into wanting to be, uh, at first I, I was thinking about Coast Guard. Again, I had, to, the only way you could serve in my head was to work for the government, you know? Right, right. And, and so this is, you know, come middle school, I've made my mind up, I'm going to be a Marine. That's just it. I picked up some book about the Marine Corps, read through like a picture book kind of thing. And then from there, it was just all in. The only thing I wanted to do was be a Marine. Um, and I don't really think I didn't really connect that to the bigger picture things. This is by the time I'm finishing high school, I enlisted, I signed my enlistment papers the spring before 9-11. Um, I enlisted um, as a reservist because my father convinced me also to go to college and become an officer. So be a reservist first. Um, then you'll go to boot camp. You'll join a reserve unit. You'll go to college and you'll become an, and you can become an officer. Um, I, you know, I was decent in school. I could, I'm, you know, not a math whiz, but history and stuff. I was a history nerd. Um, took all the AP classes and stuff. And he's like, you should go to college, you know, just middle-class family, you know, and, I do that. I go through boot camp, go through the reserves. Uh, immediately, the year after I get out of boot, like immediately after I get out of boot camp and check into my um, reserve unit, they t- the the unit is deployed in Iraq, OIF one. So everyone's overseas except a skeleton crew is back at the reserve unit, uh, and they say, "Well, you know, don't get too comfortable because next year we're going again." They already knew. So they were like, 2000, this is 2003, I check in the unit. They're like, 2000, summer 2004, you're going again. We're going again. Um, wow. And I'm like, fuck yeah, let's go. You know, right. couldn't have been more excited. All I did, I did not have your typical college life exactly because I was, you know, one thing that happens with reservists that's funny compared to active guys. Active guys, they get brainwashed and then they go out to the fleet and are kind of disabused of some of the brainwashing by the senior enlisted guys that are around them. The other people that are just a half a rank above them are being like, you believe that you're an idiot. You know what I mean? They kind of, they make fun of you. They make fun of the boots and you don't want to be a boot. Well, I right. get out and I, I finish boot camp, and then I go to a university and, and there's no one around to disabuse me of the fact that like, like, you, it's a lot of there's a lot of jokes about like marines like to wear these silky shorty shorts when they're exercising you'll hear like you'll hear about like silky runs and stuff like that where people like veterans all get together and run in their little booty like this by the way the same shorts that hooters girls wear that's the shorts <laughs> okay <that>. okay <laughs> but but in green because that makes it cool hey um, i bet they're comfortable though right uh yeah i guess so <laughs> um so like so you come out of boot camp and Marines still kind of wear those somewhat ironically, somewhat cheeky, but like there were also these like really tight t-shirts you would wear. And I would like run around a college campus like that thinking there was nothing wrong with it. Like, like just, I was a lunatic. I really thought that like, I never was disabused. So I was a weirdo. Well, that was, <laughs> um, and then I knew that I was going to war too. So like, this is in the middle of like when the Iraq war is turning weird where people are turning against it. And I'm completely like, Weapons of mass destruction are there. We just haven't found them yet kind of stuff. And I really, I remember having some conversations before boot camp where people were, were thinking, you know, is this war right? Is this not right kind of stuff? And I was, I was, you know, my father, my father was taking the neocon line definitely. And I was taking cues off of him. Well, look, you know, 
the you know the nineteen the the peace treaty that he Saddam signed in nineteen ninety one said he won't have weapons of mass destruction. He clearly does. He's violating it. We've got to go to war and smack them. If right. they break the rules, you smack them. You know. Right. I used to believe too that you had to hit a dog to train it. You know what right. I mean? My first dog was a terrible dog when I was an adult because I thought you had to smack the crap out of it when it did anything wrong. And I regret that now because that dog was a good dog, but like that's not the way things actually work. My dog no. now is a perfect dog, and I, I've never laid hands on her. If I so, if I ever raised my hand at her, she wouldn't even know what. She wouldn't be afraid because she wouldn't even know to expect to get hit. Right. You know what I mean? Anyways, I had this just wrongheadedness about the way the world actually works, and that you can just beat people into doing what you want them to do. Well, that's you how know? we were raised, man. Like I, I still today find it like very difficult when people. Talk about like, yeah, they weren't ever hit when they were a kid. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I got the shit kicked out of me, like a lot. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, that's just how I was raised. And, yeah. and just like hitting a dog, you know, it's something that has to be deprogrammed. But when you're raised around that, man, that that is life. That yeah. is the real world, you know? So, yeah, but I get it's, it. it's, it's hard to unpack. You know, I so I go to Iraq and the first deployment, there are some funky things, but I had this really just phenomenal I'm still best friends with these guys. The, the the six guys I happen to be set up with during my first deployment were some of the just just a great group of guys. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the team leader I had was one of maybe three, the top, probably the top, but the best officer I've ever met in the Marine Corps. And I really came out believing that's what the Marine Corps was like. You know what I mean? Like there was discipline, but it wasn't heavy handed. There was strong leadership and always leading by example kind of stuff. And I came out believing like, man, this guy was a great officer. I'm going to follow his lead. I'm going to be, you know, we're going to build a Marine Corps that's just like this. I never saw the real Marine Corps because I was never on the active duty side and seeing what the real Marine Corps is like. And I just happened to be lucky. And I knew that there were other teams around me for my unit that had terrible leadership and they hated their lives. I knew that. And we, we would say to ourselves sometimes, man, we're so lucky I'm not on fritz's team because staffs aren't fritz is an asshole and he's an idiot and you know man we're lucky because they're miserable every time we see them they just look depressed you know what i mean um so we, i knew that it could be not what i thought it was then come around i got home from that deployment riding on a high things went well i thought we did the right things my job um i guess i should explain that was an interesting job it was called civil affairs and our job really was to Try to keep the Marine Corps from breaking things that we shouldn't break, like blowing up water treatment plants or hospitals or ambulances, right? And you know, like try to tell them, like, these are where these things are we shouldn't do. Try to keep the relationship with the civilians positive if we can. And when we do screw up, um, make it whole, either by, you know, paying when a civilian's been injured or, or, um, or, uh, rebuilding the water treatment plant that we, he did blow up, you know what I mean? Kind of stuff, hiring a contractor. It's a cool, interesting job. You'd never believe the Marine Corps actually has that, but they do. And, you know, there were times where even then, you know, this was during Fallujah. I was in the battle of Fallujah in 2000, in, um, November of 2004. And, um, and in that, like we did have, and I, you know, we had an incident where we were in a firefight. We saw a civilian car approaching us that we thought was an IED and we shot the hell out of it and killed the driver and um, injured. Um, well, we killed one person and 
we killed a son and a father and son were both injured. One got shot, one through the arm. Um, at the time, it was me and my uh, staff sergeant who did most of the shooting in that one. And, you know, I, I, I never saw the inside of the car. We never really faced them. It was our other half of our team that went and, like, approached them and dealt with them and took them to the hospital. Um, I know my staff sergeant definitely like this hard line. It's their fault. They never should have been there in the first place. They should have known it was a firefight. And I kind of, I listened to that and I took that lead, but slowly over time, I started to think it wasn't really their fault and that we could have been more careful to prevent it from happening. And we are the ones that are in their country and we're the ones with armor and we're the ones that took on a risk. This person didn't choose to take on a risk of driving on the highway one day and just coming under a hail of machine gun fire. Cause he didn't see the camouflage trucks parked on the side of the road that happened to be shooting at something in another direction. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but it was really slow process to figure out how I really felt about that. Cause I was just in, it was their fault and they shouldn't have been there. You know, uh, it's weird to believe that somebody could think that, but now, but, um, so I get at the end of that deployment and there were some weird things. Um, I didn't feel good about leaving our interpreter behind. That's actually become an issue. Just recently, somebody raised the uh, stink about that in Afghanistan that we're leaving interpreters behind. It's new, somehow it's news to people every time that that's what we do. We hire a local to you know translate for us. And you know interpreters we had, some of them had their family members killed while I was there in 2004 for being collaborators. Um, wow. Uh, the engineers we worked with to like rebuild um, the water treatment plant, they were all killed, left their sons orphaned after we left. Just after we left, they were murdered for collaborating. Um, and so those things would bother me that we were leaving these people behind, but I also felt like we had done the right thing. And, and I kind of felt like, the, well, the team replaced us screwed up by not protecting them. You know what I mean? We yeah. were we tried to protect them. We made sure that they weren't seen in public with us and stuff like that. They must have screwed up. It's, it's these other guys' fault. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, and so I get home and some of the projects we did. Some of them we felt like were stupid. Some of the projects were like happy snap projects. Get a photo op of you re cutting the ribbon on a soccer field. You know, we we built a new soccer field and then we hear afterwards that all the sod had been immediately torn up. And it turned back into the garbage dump that it was because it had been like a communal garbage dump and the people seemed to want that to be their garbage dump. And so it turned back into a garbage dump after a couple hundred thousand dollars were spent making it into a soccer field, you know? Yeah. Um, and I felt like this was, it was stupid and wasteful, but, you know, our heart was in the right place and we were putting money into their economy um, so I could justify those things. I come home um, and immediately where we get told, well, you're deploying again in a year. So go to college for a year. I had almost been, I got a ricochet. This is nothing serious, um, but I had been hit with a ricochet and another bullet. I basically bent down and grabbed my calf and another bullet hit. I was standing behind the door of the truck, shooting from behind that. A ricochet had hit like below the door and hit my calf. And when I bent down, another one hit above the door. My buddy had been shot uh, straight in the ACOG during a uh, gunfight. Also, they're the same fight. So there was a sniper that was really had like had it dialed in. He was hit hit above and below the door in two shots back to back. You know, yeah, from probably about six seven hundred yards. Um, and he hit my buddy straight in the eye. Uh, it's just the glass stopped the bullet. Um, oh, it did. So he, it's crazy. I'll I'll send you the pictures after this. But it, well, it went in the side of the glass like this, 
and yeah. it lodged up against the uh, the rear lens and the casing around it. Um, Holy cow, dude! Yeah, he got knocked out uh, and had a bunch of little frag in his face. It's funny because we have a video of him like pulling little fragments out with a pair of pliers. Um, dude, yeah. that is metal. Yeah. God. Um. So, like, that was my first deployment. And there was like all the highs you expect of a deployment, uh, like crazy stories, and and felt like we did the good thing and we won the battle of Fallujah and we was free from insurgency and all this stuff, you know, and I had good leadership and I believed in the Marine Corps and I come home and I go back to college and, you know, a little bit like I knew they tell us 2007 deploying again, you're going right back. Right. Actually 2006. I got home in 2005. They say March, 2005, I get home and they say almost right away, 2006, summer, 2006, we're going back again. So one more year of college. And at this point I have deployment money in the bank. I didn't have any rent. I was getting paid the whole time. I blew all of it just trying to live. Cause I was like, well, you know, I could die. I almost died the last time I could die again this time. Twenty, thirty thousand $30,000. I spent just paying for all my friends booze in college past most of my classes. Not all, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, I was like, every night it would be like, well, I don't have money for that. And I, I, I you know, I'm like, well, I don't, if, if, if you're willing to go out, but money is the object. Let's go. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I just wanted to be around friends and have a good time. And I made a lot of friends that I haven't seen much of since then. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so, I mean, you you were literally stuck in this spot where you're like, man, I got to get it in now because yeah. there may not be another time. Yeah. Um, wow. And wow. so I go to overseas. When, when I um, – our unit – a Marine Corps unit's officers change every three years. The commanding officer uh, changes every three years. So um, when the new commanding officer came in, my team leader for my last deployment uh, comes up to us and he says, don't go anywhere with this dude. Don't go anywhere with the command, this new commanding officer. He's dumber than a box of hammers. You know what I mean? He's going to screw everything up. Don't go any, do not go on this next deployment if you can avoid it. And I could have avoided it because I had been accepted into an officer candidate program. So the following summer, I could have gone to officer candidate school and um, and I would have sailed right through that. I, um, and But instead, I was like, well, I had this camaraderie, you know, with the other guys on my team that were deploying again and with some of the guys on the other teams who had been miserable on their teams. But like we were buddies because we were all the same rank and, you know, yeah. Um, we had all gone to Iraq once together and we were all going to go back again. You know what I mean? Um, and so I'm like, you know, being going to OCS will still be there for me. I'll be just as good of a Marine in two years as I am now with even more experience as a higher rank. You know, I got promoted. Um, so I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll, it's no problem. I can wait another year. I'm not going to finish college yet anyways. And you can't be an officer till you finish college. So I'm not going to finish college. Being an officer can wait. I'm going on one more deployment, despite what my former boss said, that it would be a bad idea. It was a bad idea. <laughs> um, I, you know, I all the respect in that world for that guy, because he called it as soon as he met the guy, uh, the new commanding officer. But we just, everything was the opposite. It was a stupid waste of a whole year of my life. Just back in Iraq, um, all the projects that... Um, we had everything we had done the two years before was forgotten. You know what I mean? Like you go, I didn't end up going back to Fallujah, but my buddy did. 
uh, my best friend ended up back in Fallujah. He's like, everything we did two years ago, it's either torn down. We don't have any document of it. The people who did it, no, no one in the city knows that we did it. We're not winning anybody over with this. I get sent further out west to a city called Rupa. It's, um, it was just really stupid. There, there was a new commander, uh, 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 without getting too technical, basically a new commander. Sh- when a new commander shows up, they want to like make their mark. And some of them are like, they want to, you know, they want, they want a battle. You know what I mean? Right. The Marine, the Marine Corps rotates a new unit comes in every seven months. So in the year and a half from when I left, there have been three other officers through the area. You know what I mean? Or three other units through the area and three new commanding officers that want to get there. Like in this seven months, I'm going to make the biggest impact I can, but it's never like big picture, longer term thinking. How will this impact longer term? So when I get to Rupa, the new commander that shows up there just thinks that this little, little tiny truck stop city with 50, 40, 50,000 people He's decided that this is Fallujah also, and he's walled off the city, bermed it off. Nobody can come in or out except for through two checkpoints. You know what I mean? Wow. Uh, uh, and we're going to, at like we would when we at one of these checkpoints, my job began interacting with civilians and not having very many civilians interact within the surrounding desert. You know what I mean? In the city, we've declared this no-go zone, and I think it was all laughable, frankly. But I said. At this checkpoint, we would get like shot at once a week. Once a week, some guy would go up. It's hard to describe, but there was this little hill, this crest of this hill where everyone would park their cars waiting for their turn to leave the city to have their car searched. Because we would search every car top to bottom, take it apart, pull the seats out, search the person head to toe, check their ID and all this stuff. Anytime somebody wanted to leave or come in on the city. Now, you can imagine that would piss some people off. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, and to make it worse, some guy would go up to the top of where all these cars were parked and like take a pot shot at us like once a week. And that's what had the unit convinced that this city is like an insurgency hotbed, you know, one or two bullets coming towards us. And a guy got shot in the, from the got shot in the neck of the checkpoint. I almost got hit once. The guy shot like over my head. Um, and then the Marines there would just start blasting back. I mean, the 50 cal would just light up all the cars on top of that hill. You know, thinking wow. that somewhere among those cars, there's the bad guy. So you'd see 50 people waiting at the top of this hill on a Saturday morning or whatever to leave the city to go do whatever other things they need to do about their lives. Uh-huh. And then one guy takes a pot shot and you see guys flipping over, falling over the back of the hill, like like trying not to get killed because, you know, we're, we're shooting up all their cars. Right. Um, then we go through this thing. We search every house in the city we do this whole operation we're going to go every night we're going to search houses and then as soon as the sun comes up we're going to we're going to bed down in one place until every single house in this entire city has been searched systematically and we do this thing and each i call it night because that's when we were sleeping in my head it's still nighttime but so at, at night we're just searching house by house you know and then when it gets to be morning we would pick the biggest house we could with the longest like lines of sight, hard, good walls. You know what I mean? And we would knock holes in the wall for a little sniper hole for little kill holes to shoot through. Cause you don't want to stand in front of a big window. You know right. what I mean? We would, we would break out all their windows so that they wouldn't have any glass. If there was an explosion, we'd fill their windows with sandbags. We'd, uh, 
we'd lock them in like their bathroom for the night. Some family, some horrified family that we just chose. And you got to think biggest houses, right? Who has the biggest houses? Most influential, most wealthy, right? Wow. And we're doing this and we're just like, you have to stay in your bathroom for the night or for the, for the day. You know what I mean? And, um, it was during that time where it just started like, this is what the fourth amendment's all about. Yeah. Or sorry, third, third, third amendment. Yeah. Both, both third and fourth unlawful search, unwarranted search and seizure combined with quartering of troops in homes. Right. Like it just dawned on me. There's like 13 Marines, a squad of Marines with dirty boots, no sleep, haven't showered in three days that are just like, we're staying here for the day and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You and, I mean? and, and you're jacking the place up. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to trash your house. And then I'm the guy that's walking around with a little backpack of cash being like, well, actually I didn't, they didn't have the cat. I didn't have the cash on me, but I would give them a little slip and be like, come to our, our outpost and we'll reimburse you for the damage. Is that was my part of the routine? Is we'll give you a few hundred dollars for the damage after it's all done. It's like who, nobody's going to say thank you for that. No, you know what I mean. Even like, no. like oh, and and and, and the, there was a bureaucratic process. They'd have to sit around all day waiting their turn for them to speak to me or somebody else and be like, "Well, the window was damaged. Well, how big of a window was it? And well, you you shot all the locks off my house, and my dog ran away, and all this stuff, and we." Your dog ran away. We're not paying you for your fucking dog. Blah, 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 blah. And the officer I was with was a real asshole. So he didn't want to compensate for anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. So he trashed somebody's house. And I just was thinking, this is, it was then. And I, I, I was steeped in the idea of the American insurgents as the good guys. You know what I mean? So I right. could see it. I could just see like, I bet you there's some people here that are rooting for the guys that are standing up to us. Whoever's shooting back at us occasionally. There's some people here who I would you know, if this was my house, you know, I love my buddies. I would not let 13 of them, especially after a field op, stay in my house. You know what I mean? Right. And I, it, it was just dawning on me that we're really the redcoats here, right there. And it really just so kinda, you were there. You were there and this this was happening in your head. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How did that affect going forward? Like, did that, well, that affect, like between how badly everything was that's where i just hit like this low point of like this is a lost cause this is stupid where the redcoats here we're not we where the bat like regardless of whether saddam was a bad guy where the bad guys now kind of thing you know what i mean um and so it really put me into a bad place seeing that the marine corps had some really terrible the good leadership was the exception you know what i mean and yeah. even with good leadership, all the work that we did didn't amount to anything. You know what I mean? Um, so it really kind of put me into a bad place. And, you know, I think one of the things, too, I didn't mention earlier is I kind of always, I think, I, I, you know, I was talking to my fiance about this. And she's probably the first person I was really candid with about it. But one of the things always for me, like when I was 15 or 16, I just like, had meaning of life questions that I guess some people don't have. You know what I mean? I get maybe I wasn't really raised religious. Uh, my parents, like my father, um, I talked to him about this. He was he was raised an altar boy, very Catholic. You know what I mean? But after Vietnam, he came home. He told me this story because I asked him at some point why I wasn't like why I was why we didn't have any religion at all in my house. And he told this story about how he got home from Vietnam and he went back to his church 
and a fist fight broke out in the parking lot, trying people trying to get out uh, to go see Sunday football. And um, and he was like, well, if the church can't, if people can come out of the, the mass and want to fight their fellow um, churchgoer, or I don't know, I'm a parishioner or whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? Yeah. When what good is any of this? You know what I mean? And so he said he had it, he had us baptized. So at least until we were adults, like we would be, our souls would be saved. And from there he figured it was up to us. Well, me, and I don't know if not being religious, I, I find that religious people tend to have not had this problem. People that were ra- raised religious, but me is like a 15, 13, 14, 15 year old. I had like meaning of life questions that I didn't have an answer for. You know what I mean? Right. And I really kind of didn't, I didn't, I never got, I didn't have an answer at all. I couldn't figure it out on my own. Uh, I didn't really talk to anybody about it. And I kind of concluded there was no meaning. And I kind of was just like, like, well, I'm just going to go die for empire. I didn't put it in those words, but I was like part of being in the military. I'm going to, my meaning is going to be to serve. And hopefully, and I really kind of had a death wish. I was like, I don't, even though, like I said, I'm going to party it off between the deployments. I really kind of like, back of my mind, hoped that I would get killed because it would be a meaningful death. My parents would be able to, like, I had thought about killing myself a little bit here and there as a kid, you know what I mean? Not not extreme suicidal ideation, but like, well, if there's no point to living, you just get it over with. And then I, and the only thing that held me back was that I felt like it would be upset my parents and it would be like a meaningless death. But if I could have a death that they could ascribe meaning to, like going to fight for what they believed in, right? then I would be fine with it. I get that. I do get that. Like I, that, that makes sense. Yeah. You know? Um, so I didn't really have any meaning in my life except going to try to die for empire. Right. Honestly, it was like, my parents will respect that. It won't hurt them as much when I die. So that's it. You know what I mean? I mean? It's a win, win for you at that point in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of all went down the shitter when I realized that, well, this is not, this is not, we're not achieving anything. There's no meaning here. Right. We're just tearing up people's houses and not winning this war and not making their lives better. You know, like we, they probably would have all been better off if we had, I mean, I'm not going to go so far as to say Saddam was a great leader or anything like that. But like, if we had left them alone, they probably would have been better off. And if we had just killed Saddam and left, and I'm not, I'm not endorsing that, but if it would have been better if we had just invaded in 2003 and then gotten the hell out completely, if we were going to do it at all, you know what I mean? Right. You, I had this, you break it, you buy it mentality that, well, we broke it. We broke this country. So now we have to try to rebuild it. And it's like, well, the, the, the U S government is not very good at rebuilding countries. You know what I mean? People build countries on their own. You know what I mean? If they're going to at all, they, you know, it needs to come. So, so I got home from that deployment and I like lost all meaning. I started, I mean, I was, I liked partying, but now I was drinking. You know what I mean? I, I got fat. I didn't want to exercise to be a war fighter anymore because there was no point in it. Um, I, um, I just, nothing had any value to me. I was just kind of a nihilist, you know, after yeah. that second deployment. And I, um, you know, I, at some point I experimented weirdly. I, you know, I ended up experimenting with mushrooms. Um, and I think that might've been the turning point for me where like the nihilism went away. Cause I had this experience of basically questioning whether anything was real and whether my family was real. Like, 
you know, just basically seeing surreal things for the first time yeah. ever in my life, like that there could be something that was purely a figment of my imagination made me question whether that, that seemed very real made me question whether my siblings that I love dearly and whether that feeling was real at all or whether I had imagined all of it kind of stuff. Sounds you know like you I mean? had a badass trip. <laughs> that was just some damn well, good I, I, man. I, I, can, I can be a bit of an overdoer. Yeah. Um, so I remember I, this was in Amsterdam. I had take, I did a study abroad uh, the summer after this deployment. I decided to piss away my deployment money on uh, a, you know, a vacation slash college. And I was, I was in Amsterdam and like I said, I can overdo things. So I did, so you go to some shop, um, met some random girl on a train and I had a guy who would uh, sort of Sherpa guy with me, you know, and we go to a shop and the guy in the store is like, oh, this is your first time trying mushrooms? And I say, well, yeah. And she says, yeah. And then um, he's like, well, okay. In this package, there's about probably eight servings for you. Don't eat them all. It's going to take a while for them to kick in. Don't eat more because they haven't kicked in yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> don't use any marijuana with it and don't drink any alcohol for your first time. Uh-huh. I sit there, slap them on a pizza, slap a handful on a pizza, start chugging beers, smoke some marijuana. <laughs> I'm proud of and, you. Yes. And, and just chow down. <laughs> and after about five minutes, I mean, I think as far as I know, and again, I've only tried this once, like one of the first things that affects is your perception of time. So after about 10 minutes, it felt like it had been an hour to me. And right. I'm like, this shit isn't working. And I just finished the box. Oh God. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. So that's where that came from is well, I had a pretty tough. extreme uh, situation. And, how, how, uh, how long did that that uh, trip last you? Whole day, I think. I we, we had, it felt like the whole. It was a lot. Like <laughs> it was a lot going on. Uh, I have some funny memories from it, but like, um, yeah, it felt like forever. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, I, there were some funny moments. I completely forgot how to like. We we went at some point. We went back to like a, a coffee shop for the guy I was there with to get some more weed. And um, all the little there were some decorations. Some was like paper mache balls on the wall because it was the World Cup and the Netherlands was in it. And so it's like orange little like semi circle globe things on the walls. They all started inflating till I was like, I can't. I got to get out of here. There's no room left in here. <laughs> Um, that's awesome yeah i started i forgot how to pee i was standing there for what felt like an hour (laughs) trying to figure out how to pee again because i was i I knew i had to pee but i couldn't like control my urinary tract (laughs) so i like had to figure it out mentally like what muscle to relax at each point yeah you got a good one yeah but the 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 big one was like i really like it's like well whatever imaginary things I saw had me questioning whether like my entire life up to this moment had really existed. And then like, it was really this moment of like, well, like part of the meaning of life is like the people you love and caring for them and being there for them. And it just, I think retrospectively, that's where like, I, you know, a few months later, I got myself back in shape. I had some meaning in my life again. I cared about the people I loved more deeply. And I don't think I thought about it in those terms at that time. But looking back and hearing how mushrooms and MDMA and stuff like that are being used as therapies for post-traumatic stress and whatnot, it had got me thinking, maybe that was it. Like, maybe that kind of is where I got myself out of the funk. Now, 
what that translated to me, like life and career wise is I, there was another deployment coming to Afghanistan. Um, and all the best guys were going on it. All my, like all the, the top tier guys from my unit were going and I was going to, cause I had some meaning in my life. This is a new war. This is the good war, by the way, Afghanistan was the good war right. of the two. You know what I mean? Now, retrospectively, I don't think either of them were, but, um, so I whipped my ass into shape. I lost 40 pounds. I, um, you know, I became a good Marine again. I got promoted and I was there to, to, to do it. And, you know, um, it's not long. I'd always identify. Sometimes if people had asked, I would have said I, had, and that deployment went reasonably okay. Um, it wasn't anything that happened crazy during that, that made me question anything. Um, but after that, I, um, I got to starting to, I, I got to an op- opportunity to, uh, be an instructor for my job, um, for the civil affairs job. So I went to the schoolhouse and I thought that was cool because, and I started wanting to think about a different career. I'd fin- I was finishing, I had just finished undergrad and I started thinking, well, what am I going to do other than be a Marine? I can't be a Marine reservist as a, like, I can't just depend, go on deployment after deployment as a Marine reservist um, for a living. So it had me thinking about what else am I going to do? Um, and so when I got home from that deployment, I kind of made my mind up that I was going to go to the schoolhouse. And I thought if my sister was a teacher. And again, I still, to this date, um, I'm a teacher now too, and uh, the libertarian world can hate me for it. I do teach jury nullification for what it's worth. There you I go. make it a point to get some libertarian. I teach government. Um, I don't know that I've outed myself as a as a teacher, a public school teacher. Hey man, um, I, I may seek to transition from that uh, I, to be more in you. line with my beliefs. I, I don't want to don't want to interrupt you. Nothing. I'm interrupting you, but mm-hmm. I just want to tell you, I, I got a very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. He helped me start up a uh, the Canadian County LP affiliate. He's a high school teacher. And what mm-hmm. he has done, he started an after school kind of extracurricular off the books things where he's teaching mm-hmm. these kids Austrian economics and mm-hmm. also like teach them Rothbard. So, so there is a pivotal role that you could play in that position. Like don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I, I try my best to, um, the way I think about it is, you know, when uh, I think there's some, uh, I think it's Rothbard who, or maybe it's um, Walter Block who gives the experiment, like the the thought experiment of the, um, you know, who would be who would be better to have, you know, what's he say? I mean, he takes things to extreme, so he says something like, "Would you rather have the um, libertarian concentration camp executioner who tries to get as many people freed as he can, and, and like slow drags his uh, his job, or the committed one?" Right. You know what I mean? Right. Now that's, that's me rationalizing uh, a little bit, but yeah. So uh, to stay with the story and we'll come back. So like I get this idea that I might want to teach from my sister saying, maybe you should think about teaching. Da, 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 da. Uh, she was a teacher. Um, it's a way to, again, I couldn't think of any way to contribute to society other than working for the government still. And I started, I, if you would ask me, um, I would have said some, I was either a libertarian or a libertarian leaning Republican. Not quite Ron Paul. Ron Paul. Ron Paul had a bad name to me only because when I first heard of him in like 2008, right? He was against. I was still for the wars, and he was against them. I wasn't right. a libertarian. I wasn't anti-war libertarian. 
yet, but I would have been like this conservatarian, hot, like, you know, minarchist kind of thing. Um, and so I wouldn't say he had a bad name for me, but I didn't get on the Ron Paul revolution. I didn't like the Giuliani moment didn't convert me. But other than that, like, I know I remember somebody asking me before, like, well, what are you politically? And I said I was a libertarian. And actually, Adam Kokesh had been part of, had my same job in the Marine Corps and had been deployed to Fallujah the tour before me. Um, so when I said to someone in 2004 that I was a libertarian, like, don't you, and Kokesh had gone to a few protests or whatever, like, don't you fucking turn into a Kokesh on us or something like that. <laughs> That's awesome. You know what I mean? And, and that kind of actually, I wouldn't say it scared me away, but I was like, oh, well, I guess stay away from the libertarians a little bit kind of, right. with the, you know, but like, I would have said that like most of, I was definitely like a constitutionalist minarchist. Um, but some wars were necessary. And if you fight, you have to fight to win. You know what I mean? It was where I was, but my dad actually made the mistake of buying me Tom Woods, um, history. Uh, what's his, um, politically incorrect guide to history. And it was okay. on my shelf for a few, for a year or two until I finally got around to reading it in 2009 like right after that, my third deployment. And I was like, Tom Woods guy is interesting. And I went to Quantico to be an instructor for my job. And in Quantico, if you live it ever, anyone's ever lived around Northern Virginia, it's, it's a hellscape of, of, it's a suburban hellscape. And it takes you 45 minutes and 15 traffic lights to get anywhere. Um, so I had like a commute to my, um, my unit every day, um, a long commute. And I started, this was before podcasts were a thing, but there was, um, or at least they were a small thing, but there was iTunes had created this iTunes U where basically like it was recordings of lectures and Tom Woods lectures were on there. Um, he did like a 10 episode series of lectures. This is before he had a podcast even. Um, he had a 10 episode series of lectures um, about his book. And... And then I guess the Mises Institute had some of like had anatomy as a state and Spooner recorded um, available uh, through iTunes U. And on my commute, I, I because I had read the book, I was like, oh, this Tom Wood guy, I kind of like him. And I started listening to his lectures. And I was like, oh, wow, you know. And I still remember the one um, militarism war's best friend or like the anti-war one that he, was, he gave to a conservative audience just like hit me like a lightning bolt. You know what I mean? Yeah. I could picture where I was driving to Quantico one day and I, uh, and I was like, Oh no. You know what I mean? <laughs> there it was Everything, like, you know, this is it. I can't refute any of this. This is just dead. To, he had, he had everything dead to rights. There was no way as a conservative minded person, I could support even militarism, even like the military, you know, it just, it had me right there. And right. I, in a while to process i know i listened to anatomy of the state and and spooner those three just bang 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 in like 2010 listened to them and i was just like this is it i'm, a, I'm an anarchist now you know what i mean uh, what that meant for me career-wise was like was i guess i had hoped i so i i ended up doing one more deployment um for a variety of reasons. Um, I did my job the best I could. I really didn't interact with anyone else in my unit. 
they, my but the few buddies I had that were in the unit at that point gave me a thing. Uh, we made we did this gag thing where we made up fake awards for each other, like bogus awards. Mine was stealth mode because literally, if I wasn't like if I wasn't doing my job or required to be somewhere, I wasn't there at all. You know what I mean? Right. I would always just have some other place to be or be doing something. I I didn't shirk my job, but I was like at this point. I'm very outspoken to the Marines like that I'm with, like, don't fuck these people's lives up. Don't search their fucking houses. Don't, if you fuck something up of theirs, we're, we are on the hook for it. We're paying them back. I had enough rank to talk to the infantry Marines. Like, no, 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 You, you kick in their door. You fucking give them a chit. You, I pay for it. Like you don't right. fuck these people's worlds up. They are the poorest goddamn people on the planet. And you can't do this to them for no fucking reason. You believe in, you swore an oath to the constitution. You know what I mean? Um, you're not going to search somebody's house without a good goddamn reason kind of, you know? Um, and, uh, needless to say, I wasn't necessarily very popular with the unit I was with either. (laughs) You didn't like that, huh? Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, what the fuck? Why? Oh, how are we supposed to do our jobs? We can't search people's houses. It's like, well, you know, just leave them alone. (laughs) Like you leave, like I, I realized that point that like the insurgency, I think to me is largely driven by us fucking with them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's not some deeply held ideological beliefs about the Quran or about the Taliban form of governance. It's a bunch of people that are like, these people are here fucking with our lives. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, they drive a truck through, you know, I'm making a subsistence existence and they think nothing of drive of landing a helicopter or driving a truck through my cornfield. You know what I mean? Right. You know, um, like that kind of stuff. Like, we would patrol through cornfields because a, a cultivated area wasn't likely to have a mine in it. You know what I mean? Not going right. to dig up. You know, they're not going to plant a, a, an IED in the middle of a cornfield necessarily. It's the footpaths where they're going to put them and they're going to hope that we're lazy. So we would go through all of the, all their crops and uh, stuff like Makes that. Sense. And, uh, and I didn't love that, but like, um, so Long story short, I get out after my fourth deployment. I'm pretty much done with everything and I'm applying to universities. I, you know, take, I, and I go to University of Florida for, uh, for, to become a teacher. I kind of hope maybe, you know, and I still might, I, I'm, I'm looking, there's a, there's a school that I might apply to, a private school. I, you know, I'm not sure. I would love to find a way to be an educator that I think they're, I'm not entirely convinced of this. Like, I love school sucks. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that, like, this is one where maybe I have some more learning to do. Because it took me a while to get over, like, we don't need police. We don't need this. We don't need that. You know what I mean? It takes a while. Like, I haven't seen unschooling firsthand to know what, like, an unschool structure looks like. Um, I, um, I'm not convinced. I, I think that... a small school of choice is a viable option. Not exactly Prussian modeled bell to bell, but I don't, I don't think that I don't think it's, I think I I have a feeling I should say that you could have school that is not a giant comprehensive Prussian style high school. You know what I mean? And I need to find something like that where I could still be an educator. Cause I, I kind of came to this conclusion, actually, the way I came around to wanting to be a teacher was thinking like, I still have this and I always have, aside from this bias towards well, like, not having any ability to think of working 
contributing to society besides contributing. I'm, I'm kind of getting myself past that now, but I really feel like I said, I never thought you could contribute to society without getting a government paycheck, which is right. ridiculous, but that's just, it's really deeply ingrained in me and hard to crack. But um, I kind of end up thinking that I, um, uh, um, that there could be school structures that would work that aren't, that aren't complete unschooling, but still like that I could be a charter school teacher or at a private school um, and, and that be okay. You know what I mean? Right now I'm at a public school and like I, I teach government to uh, ESOL students, to immigrant students. I, um, I do my best to like take out the worst of the indoctrination that's built in and have kids kind of, and, and I kind of tap into like, well, you know, you're from Honduras you don't trust your government at all. Right. Like the police are corrupt. Like, and I, you know, um, kind of tap into some of their distrust of government and like, you guys know that government isn't always the answer kind of stuff. Like right. there's other ways to solve problems. Um, well, that's beneficial, man. Like, I mean, cause yeah. if you weren't doing that, who's to say what the other teacher that would be in that seat would be doing. Oh, I know. I know. You know? Cause I so, have her curriculum book, the teacher that preceded me in the same job. And it starts like day two is anarchy equals chaos. What? See, it's just literally day two uh, of government school and all the other teachers. I'm not kidding you. In my, they, one of the first lessons is like different type monarchy, anarchy, blah, blah, blah. And anarchy equals chaos is the uh, public school answer. Wow. Um, wow. It's ridiculous. Um, so uh, I guess I should like when I. So that's where I kind of am now. Um, and it's kind of how I got there. The anti-war thing was always in my mind as an issue. I was, you know, when I, when I heard the logic of it from uh, Tom Woods and then I started listening to Scott Horton um, and I, uh, and I, you know, war is, and I really started to see that like war is the germ. Like, and even if you, I'm not, I'm not completely over my founder's worship when you see Madison say that war is the germ of every other domestic ill. You know what I mean? War is the war gives birth to debt and taxation, debt and taxation give to tyranny, tyranny gives to slavery. You know what I mean? I think that logic is impeccable. I think that, man, they got it. You know what I mean? That we should never have had the standing army. We should have maybe. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a, I believe Spooner. I believe we'd probably be better off without, like, without a constitution. But I also am willing to like be like, you know, if we had stuck with it, and I don't know that it's possible, but if we had stuck to not having, I think the really the major downfall of our country was in 1917 when Wilson picked up a stand, start, created a real standing army. And it's yeah. just been all downhill since then. Um, so I really became convinced that like, we need to stay out of all wars, um, that we only make things worse domestically and overseas through them. Um and that, and I, I was pretty just in my own head about it. I, maybe if we, if I was talking politics to somebody, but I wasn't on social media, I had like gotten off social media for, because it's a gem, enormous time suck. It is. And, um, it is. and then in 2000, you know, I would, um, I would like contribute when I was in Florida in grad school, I would contribute to, and I, I taught there for two years before moving up here with my fiance. Um, I would contribute to like the libertarian campaign. I would go to libertarian meetups and stuff like that. 
Um, but I wasn't, I only had like one toe in my life in Florida because I kind of always knew I was going to be back up here uh, in Maryland. And when I came, when I moved back up here in 2018, it just happened that there was a, um, a Veterans Day uh, Bring Our Troops Home rally that they had in, um, in D.C. And that's where I kind of learned. I just heard about Defend the Guard um, from probably Tom Woods' show. Um, that previous summer, I learned about Defend the Guard from Pat McGeehan. And then when I went to this event, it was like the catalyzing moment where I was like, I'm going to get back on social. I'm going to get on social media. At the time, I was only going to talk about anti-war things and try to be politically neutral. That lasted for about six weeks. <laughs> um, I was like, yeah. I was like, I need to get Defend the Guard passed in Maryland. That was like my only reason, like all of a sudden I'd be like, prior to that, I was not, not politically active. I was just one of those podcast listening anarchists who didn't really, like I, I was doing my job and doing what I could in my little world, but I wasn't like politically active. I wasn't like a, a Mises caucus member. I wasn't an LP member in the state. I don't think, but like when I learned about defend the guard, I was like, there's a, there actually is a political action item that can do something like yeah. I'm thoroughly convinced that defend the guard if passed somewhere, even in just one state could change the entire game. Um, uh, if people aren't familiar, I, I bet almost all your listeners are, but if anyone isn't, it's a bill to all it really says is that the federal government can't send a specific state's national guard, whatever state passes it can't send their national guard into a combat zone unless Congress declares war in that place first. But what that means in practice is that Congress will actually have to vote for a war, even though the wars are overwhelmingly unpopular. Um, They only less than 15% of Congress was in office when the AUMFs were passed. So there's only like a tiny sliver, like less than 70 Congress people who were in office when they voted to send us to Iraq and Afghanistan. And then the Afghanistan AUMF has metastasized out to eight other countries now. Um, And this would kind of effectively invalidate that because believe it or not, the guard is still relied on pretty heavily, especially the air guard. A lot of the transportation to and from the combat zones is air guard. Um, a lot uh, the some of the drones are Michigan Air Guard. Um, a lot of the close air support is A-10s and half of the A-10 squadrons are Air Guard. And if any state like Idaho or Maryland passes the Defend the Guard Act, that's going to completely deprive the Air Force of like one of its essential or Michigan passes it or Texas or the other units that have a drone unit. It's going to deprive the Air Force of its ability to maintain a continuous presence over these war zones. Wow. Um, so if one, and I was just convinced that this is it, this is just one of those like lightning bolt moments. I've got to get this thing passed. Um, so that's when I kind of became active on Twitter and uh, started really trying to like reach out across the aisle as much as I could. At first, uh, I lost faith in Maryland Democrats for being, and all Democrats for like, there's only a small, tiny sliver of them we talked about that are actually anti-war. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh and then I just started just being me on Twitter and going to town on people, mostly about war stuff. I try to stick to that, but uh, occasionally I get drawn into other stuff. Um, I'll attack conservatives for like defending this giant 
wealth, you know, welfare, warfare, state, all tech, anyone. I get, I go a little crazy on that. And then um, as I was listening to more and more podcasts, I felt like there was a niche because I find, I find, I think there's a million different ways to appeal to people. I think people like me are, are persuaded by facts and logic. I think a lot more people are persuaded by emotion and feeling. And I was here and I, I can, I could, I wanted to do something more to kind of popularize the message, uh, the anti-war message. Cause I think, so I decided that I needed to influence culture Yeah. and I'm classically someone that like, even when I was in the military, I was what they call a good idea fairy where I just like, I have the idea that the boss will think is great and then I'll throw it into the room and then somebody else will get like, oh yeah, you, Drew, go take care of that. That's a great idea, Spalding. You know what I mean? I'm the classic <laughs> good idea fairy where I throw an idea out there and everyone's like, I make more work for people because I have this great idea. Right. You know? Um, and I was sitting there thinking for a while there should be a podcast that talks about anti-war cultural things. And that could be anything. Because um, like like I said, I could try to be Scott Horton 2.0 or Kyle Anzalone or any of the other people that like really keep you up to date on the current events and have all the history um, to be anti-war. But I thought what I felt like was missing and I looked around for it for a while was, is there anyone that just talks about anti-war movies or anti-war music or anti-war or just my story about how it affected me to slowly over time process the fact that I killed an innocent person? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, um, and so I started up a podcast just recently and I, I calling it a hiatus. I will be, I have, a um, it, another week or two and I'll have some episodes back out again. I have like five or six in the can that I just need to edit. Um, and then I'll be recording more, but I have 10 right now. And the idea is just any reason that anyone questioned war, it doesn't have to even be like why you are. Um, Scott Horton, anti-war advocate, and every and every war in the history of the world has been wrong. It could just be, I had this weird moment where I saw, um, where I saw, and then one of the guys, Tony, that was a former Marine. You know, I was watching the news one night, and I was just like, "What in the hell are we doing in Nigeria?" You know what I mean? Right. How do we get three people killed in Nigeria? And what 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 is go- what's going on in the world? I didn't even know this. You know what I mean? And now we have people dying, and that kind of woke him up, and all of a sudden got him moving or it could be uh scott horton said the first thing that turned him was um watching a george carlin routine about how he never trusts the government ever and he shouldn't trust him on war most of all or you know what i mean um so that's what i've started up is trying to reach out to anyone i can and it, it literally right now it's almost exclusively been veterans and only one veteran who wasn't a libertarian already I'd really love a thousand voices. And I try, what I do with people is I talk to them for about 45 minutes, an hour, whatever. And then I try to get the essence of their story or maybe three or four stories. Tell me about the time you shot up that car. That's my story. One of my stories. You know what I mean? Tell me about it. And now I'm going to make a five, 10 minute blurb of just you telling that story. Cause I cut myself out of all of it. And I just put your voice out there. I was in this place. I did this thing. It tore me up inside. And then I started thinking maybe we shouldn't be here at all. You know what I mean? So I take you, just the person listening, just saying that. Or I was watching George Carlin with my girlfriend one night, and it just, I was like, damn, that's funny, but that's also true. Right. You know what I mean? And it got me it got me thinking differently. And the next time somebody started talking about war, I was like, ah, you're full of shit. 
You know what I mean? Uh, right. it could, or, or it could be a movie you watch, anything really, you know? Um, so that I, I feel like by doing that, if I make them short, cause I don't know about you, but I listen to too many podcasts. I, I have hundreds of hours. I listen at three speed and I can't keep up to anything. I have mm-hmm. more in this, in the queue every day. And uh, I just have to delete. Like, I wish I could listen to this, but I can't. And so I was like, you know what? I want to make them short. I want to be like 10 minutes or less. Listen to this one person and share it with one person you think will like, will be, it'll hit. You know what I mean? Nice. Um, like, listen to 10 minutes of somebody telling why George Carlin made them question more and then share it with one person who also thinks George Carlin's funny. You know right. what I mean? And then hopefully we can kind of just have that emanate out through the culture a little more. Cause I think, I think a lot of people think they're anti war. A lot of people don't even know where Afghanistan is. Don't even think we're really at war there. And and to be to give the devil his due, you know, the military has done a fantastic job of sterilizing it to the point where the only thing you get in the news is, well, maybe if you get it at all, is a very boring report about how five people were blown up last night. And they don't even say blown up; they say five insurgents were killed. Who killed them? We don't know. You know what I mean? just this passive voice thing that maybe you'll see in the news is somewhere in the world, five people were blown to shreds and we're assuming that they're civilian. They're they're They were all bad guys um, with no evidence to prove it. Um, and they were in the, in a twist of rending steel of rusted steel torn to pieces in the middle of the night is the real story. But we get this at home. If, if, if anyone's paying attention at all, they just get this sterilized moment and they don't even think of it. And I can understand it. I don't blame people uh, for not listening to hours of all the worst things America has ever done. You know what I mean? And continues to do, Um, which is why I'm trying to go for something a little bit more. Here's something entertaining. Uh, Here's a song that I really like that I listen to just for fun because I like to hear it, but also maybe could change a mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So that's my little jam. That and Defend the Guard are like my two pet projects that I really uh, hoping I can really lean into in the coming, uh, in the coming months and, and really grow out a little bit. Um, I also talking to, um, you remember the, you know, the guys from vets for volunteerism. I've heard of them. I, I don't know them though. Um, no. They, their podcasts, they, they put it, I think they called it quits. I think they found the, the market for just veterans talking shit was saturated a little bit. Yeah. Or libertarian veterans talking shit. That's a cool. They actually did some cooler stuff than that. They did some kind of in-depth things, and uh, they had some like themed episodes where there were a few things going on the line. But I, whether it was just, I don't know what they gave up on theirs, which disappoints me because I like listening to them. Um, but I was talking to him. He has a new podcast called uh, OFP, but it's not own fucking program. It's uh, it's play. He's playing with that, but it's like own freedom uh, I, feel, I, I feel bad not knowing it off the top of my head because i know i want to plug it i want to give him his plug but um but i was talking to him for his show um and one of the things that actually i wouldn't say it turned me anti-war but there was a great documentary around 2006 or 7 called operation homecoming and you can find clips of it still on youtube um you can't find the you might be able to find the whole thing on Vimeo, but they did this cool thing. And actually, believe it or not, like um, the 
it, it was funded by Boeing, but it wasn't as terribly hawkish as you would expect. What they did was in 2004 or so, they did this writer's workshop where they got a bunch of like writers, like if you've heard of Tim O'Brien who did the things they carried or a guy named, to like a bunch of Vietnam era write, war writers mostly, but also like Tom Clancy and some hawkish people to volunteer some of their time to like go to military bases, some overseas and some back stateside and kind of talk about the writing process and teach people in the military to write their stories. And they got a bunch of submissions, write a poem, write uh, something, write, just give us a copy of your letter home for all we care. Anything, any story you have from about 2001 Afghanistan till about 2004 Iraq, they collected all these stories, people's poems, people's songs, all that. They made a book out of them uh, called Operation Homecoming. And they sort of categorized them into like, you know, war is hell chapter about like bad things that happened and homecoming, how the distance you felt coming home or the distance between you and your spouse or um, just anticipation and fear. They had it categorized in these different chapters. And then the cool thing they did from there is PBS did a uh, sort of thing where they made 10 different little um mini vignette films like five minute films based off of one of the stories and one of them was like a cartoon of a guy's first firefight and another one was um was uh was a guy was sort of a reenactment almost but it was about a guy killing a civilian and like it was written from both perspectives like what did the civilian see and feel as he got shot and as he was dying on the helicopter to the base and the marine next to him is crying so it wasn't all, even though Boeing paid for it, it wasn't all like glory. You know what I mean? Right. And it was a cool documentary. And I just reread that recently too. And I was talking to Dane and I think another project I'm going to try to take on this summer is getting people, anyone that has something they've written down. And I, I don't know if I'm able, you know, I might even try to coordinate some kind of online writer's workshop. If I can get a anti-war writer who's written like, and not, not, not fiction exactly, but fictionalized, like a good writer right. to kind of talk about, hey, here's some ideas of how to write your story. Like I've never written out my story about shooting those civilians and how it affected me. Exactly. I've, I've started writing, I've played with it, but I've never really written it out. And I'm not a probably a good enough writer to really have every emotional point hit the way you would want it to. So I, I bet there's a million other people out there who have have stories like that. And it could be a wife who was, you know, divorced her husband because of his PTSD too. It doesn't have to be that you were a veteran. Right. Any way the war affected you. I would love to get a bunch of those and compile them into a book. That'd be you know legit, I mean? man. That would be cool to, to do like an operation homecoming 20 years later. Yeah. You and and I mean? here's the, here's the benefits. And it would, it's not just yeah. for them, but that's gotta be therapeutic. I mean, mm -hmm. hugely therapeutic. Mm -hmm. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I bet it would. Um, so it'd be really, I think it would be a good thing to do. And, and what hit me when I reread the book, because I just reread it a few months ago, um, was like, damn, this is 20 years ago. So you have this story about this guy, a civilian who got shot. And it mentions, you know, he's orphaned his two sons or whatever. Those sons are 20 years old now, 25. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when you're thinking about this story happened 20 years ago and like, what happened to those kids? Where are they now? Like that story is never going to get finished. You know what I mean? Right. What would be really cool is to be able to get some people from, 
from Iraq or Afghanistan to get, to tell about their experiences too. I don't know that would, it, that would be more inclusive and actually probably more powerful to be, you know, yeah. I don't know how you do that, but it's at least worth venturing into um, to try and get, I think that that's one of those good idea fairy moments where like, damn, I wish somebody else would do this, but I guess I got to try. You know what <laughs> I mean? It, man, I get those too, brother. I get it, man. <laughs> you're thinking, you're like, shit, nobody's really going to do it. All right. Well, well yeah. at least if everyone else is going to write, do the, like if everyone else is writing their own things and I'm just kind of curating and collecting and, yeah, and figuring out how to publish something, then that's, that changes things a little bit, yeah. you know, but, uh, but I think that's my good. If anyone out there listening right now wants to feels more equipped to take on that project, I can. <laughs> you're welcome to it because it's. But get all but of yeah. Scott's support, all of yeah. it, every bit of it. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, that those are my like three big things that I'm kind of on is defend the guard, my podcast. Well, what it would do for my podcast is then I could just read a chapter from one chapter, <laughs> one submission a week from now on. I just have to read it out loud or get the person who submitted it. Hey. Will you read what you wrote for me? <laughs> there you go. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Then, then I, I compile those in the audio book. Yes. <laughs> bang, bang. Now you're cooking with oil. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how I've ended up here is uh, Tom Woods really – there were a few moments along the way, but Tom Re- Woods was really the, like, crystallizing, like, damn it, he's right. Right. You know I mean, what I mean? That dude's got a way. That, yeah. He, he has a way with putting forward information that's palpable. You know, and, mm. and and for even the most statist of minds, because Tom Woods was one of, one of the people that I, you know, I would listen to along with Liberty Weekly and stuff like that. Uh-huh. It's like, damn. I mean, he, he, how do you refute some of that stuff? Yeah, you know, I, I do have one question for you. Sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Before. How is um how how is the relationship in between you and your and your family members who haven't had the same? You know, like is is that a source of conflict now or? It is actually, um, yeah. not so much with my father. Um, he, he knew where I was growing politically for a while in between one of the deployments I stayed at his house. And I remember it was actually, again, this is the kind of semi Republican in me in 2008, but even then, even at that moment when Obama got elected, I remember I was at his house and I was like, the only answer to this country at this point is secession. You know what I mean? Yeah. The only, an- like like not that Romney would have saved the world. I didn't think that at all. I voted libertarian probably in that election. Um, it's I'm in, well, I have the luxury of being in Maryland, the luxury and disdain for being in Maryland that um, my vote doesn't count either way. If I vote Democrat, it's a drop in the bucket. If I vote Republican, I'm it's not, it's, it's the same as voting libertarian. So I could always just vote libertarian and never, uh, never worry about affecting the outcome. Right. You know, because uh, Maryland's d- just an incredibly deep blue state, uh, but when when somehow I and I think I I would venture to say that Obama was a shade worse, especially than 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 Romney would have been, <laughs> but not by much. Being no. realistic now, <laughs> with the perspective I have now, but at that time I was so disappointed, and again, just thinking about my past self and how naive I was, you know what I mean? But, uh, but I was a shade disappointed at, at, to the point where I was like, I think the only way to fix anything now is for a state to secede. And then what I thought at the time to like naivete or whatever is that a state should secede and then re-ratify the constitution and invite any other states that want to re-ratify the constitution. Cause I was still very constitutionalist. I thought it was this perfect 
holy writ. This is right. pre Spooner Spalding, you know, um, that that would be the way. Like, how could a state, how could the rest of the government refute that? Like, look, we're just going to have this minimal constitutional government. And if you guys don't want to join us, then bye. Like, you can keep your massive, hyper federalist, nationalist government, and we're going to have a minarchist constitutionalist government between Texas, Louisiana, and Florida, you know, or whatever. Right. Um, I really thought that was, that was the only way to change things politically. I kind of still do. I kind of think that defend the guard is the first step. The only like nullification legal step to really put a, put a pinch on the warfare state. I think it's probably the only way that war is going to be and the more militarism will be reduced at all. Yeah. Um, and even that it's a baby step. Um, but I think really the only political, if there is a political solution to our problems, it's, it's getting uh, Shane Hazel to run for president instead of governor. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'll be the president of Georgia. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and we're going to secede if I win, you know? Um, just, and and if, if for nothing else, even if you're not a radical anarchist, like you and me are, um, if you're just a, a, a minarchist or whatever, then like, that's still the only way to get back to minarchy. I think is to force that force the issue. Like, Hey, look, you know, we're going to be a minarchy here in this state and we're not taking part in your nonsense anymore. That's the only political solution. I think if the voting is going to solve anything, it's going to be getting a state to vote for secession, you know? Um, but, uh, family wise, sorry, that's how I, I got away from that. Um, my father kind of understood where I was coming from because I know he saw me going down this road and I've had some talks with him kind of recently about how it looked like it really kind of just deepened my values. Like, like I still do, like I can point to Madison and other people who said we shouldn't be around the world searching for monsters to destroy. Or that was, uh, that wasn't, that was Quincy Adams. Um, but um, we shouldn't like, I can still kind of point to those values and say that, look, you know, the principle, like, they held those principles, but they just didn't go all the way to anarchy for their own reasons. But you know, the logical conclusion of all this, and I've talked it through with my father, the logical conclusion of minarchy, of, of libertarianism, which you could argue that most of the, not the federalists, but the anti-federalists, the logical conclusion, what Patrick Henry took things to do is anarchy, you know? Right. Um, and, and, uh, I don't really know what on earth is going on with my sister, but it has weirdly unexpectedly caused a rift with her that I have not mended for like a year. Uh, I can't see my knees. Like she, she's recently I've tried to make, I don't even know what exactly happened. Cause she has been cagey about it, but, but um, yeah, it actually has caused a rift. Like I used to talk politics pretty regularly with my brother-in-law at their house and stuff. And I don't know what, exactly came around but she basically about a year ago last fourth of july we were having a put like a it was perfectly normal for us to talk politics and something kind of came up and and she was very like she's not a heavy heavy drinker or anything but you know recreation like on a on a fourth of july i have a few beers and something she kind of misunderstood or misheard something we were discussing actually kind of race and police issues and she took things to some extreme and we really haven't talked for a year now. Um, Damn, man. It sucks. Um, Cause I really love them and my niece and nephew. Um, and uh, I'm still working on it. Um, that's, that's a, that's a wound. That's a fence. I'm, 
I intend to mend, but uh, it did. I, I wish I could tell you how it affected it because I really don't understand. I've never, I, I, I restrained my most extreme impulses. You know, when you're in person with someone, you don't say, well, you know, the, the president should be impeached and tried for war crimes necessarily. I mean, as much as that's a great line, you know right, what I mean? Right. Um, like you, you, you frame things in a way that you hope that people you love will understand. And somewhere along the way, I don't know. Um, it, it, yeah, it's very, you know what the more awkward part too is my nephew is an American boy and is very, very, you know, raised in the steeped in militarism. And my b- brother-in-law is a uh, Teddy Roosevelt Republican. If you want to like, he, you know, we ought to be, we ought to be around the world. He's a neocon basically, you know? Right. Um, and him and I have had some discussions about that that went pretty far where he really does believe that might makes right. And like, it wouldn't, you know, that, that we should force the world to live in our image kind of stuff. Um, I, we weren't fighting over like we never fought about that. We always ever we always kind of enjoyed the sport of the conversation. But I th- I do think I did worry a lot because I saw just I don't know how much it was my influence or really definitely his father's influence. But my nephew like he would be a recruiter's he could be a recruiting target, and I don't know that I want that anymore. I also run up against that sometimes. Um, I coach lacrosse. Um. I coach a sport and, you know, kids will be like, they could something about me. They could still tell. I don't really like wear my military, my, 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 my veteran status on my sleeve. Um, exactly. Uh, especially in school. Um, but they, they know the rumor, like the, whether it just travels and the way I train them and, and condition them is like military style exercises. Maybe I need to find some ways to condition that aren't military style conditioning, right. but they know. And they'll ask me, and I try to do some counter recruiting messaging um, to them sometimes because they that we have a Marine Corps ROTC program in the school, and I haven't really gone counter recruitment on that. But I do like there's some. But when it comes to kids asking me, I'm like, well, I don't know that they like. I'll tell them like, being you know, there's better ways to serve your community. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can yeah like uh, you know there's serve your community at home kind of stuff. Like you know right. you really want to be sent to California like um to be to be to repair jet engines when you could be fixing somebody's car right down the street kind of stuff right you know? right um i'll try to like turn them away i worry about it though because th- i think they respect something about it i think there's things that are worthy of respect that maybe get cultivated from i think they exist in people i think there's this misapprehension this misunderstanding that um the military brings out the best in people. I think it, it, it does draw people that have certain features and then hones them. You know, I think I already would have been able just through virtue of my painfully loud voice. I think I was deaf. My sister's theory is that I was deaf and I needed a cochlear implant as a kid. And that's why I always sound like I'm yelling. Uh, you sound good. It, it, hey, I can hear I you. We're gain, good. I'm loud as hell too, man. We're good. I have the gain all the way down on my mic. <laughs> I love it. Uh, <laughs> but like something about when I shout at kids or what, like there's some like that being able to marshal people around is a skill. You know what I mean? When yeah. you have a large group of people being able to marshal them and it's one that you definitely get practice doing in the military, you yeah. know, and it's not an invaluable skill. And getting practice at it makes you better at certain things. So I'm not, 
But I think a lot of people attribute that, well, that's the only way, like the military made this person better. And I don't, I don't buy that, but I do buy that you can gain skills, certain skills in the military that then people kind of plan on, well, that's the only way you could have gotten them. You know what I mean? Right. Um, Which is a shame. And yeah, I struggle with that though. I struggle with like seeing my nephew kind of like at least have signs that if a recruiter came to him, he'd be open to it. You know what I mean? Right. Or, or that kids that look up to me um, might think that the way to emulate me would be to join the military, you know? Um, it's definitely a struggle there too. Cause I try, I, you know, it depends. It's hard to, it's also hard to navigate just because it's a lot, it would be a lot to unpack to a 16 year old kid on a JV lacrosse team. You know what I mean? Like these are all the re- like, Listen here, kid. Ah, you know, <laughs> right. without sounding like a crazy person, exactly. Right. You know, so just like subtly enough, being like, well, you know, there's other things you could do. I mean, you know, I think there's better ways to gain safe self discipline. If a kid thinks they need discipline, like go do a jujitsu team. You know what I mean? Right. I know a guy who, like, you know, go start doing some jujitsu. You'll learn to fight better than you ever could in the military, and. And you'll learn more self-discipline, which is way more powerful than external discipline, you know? Um, But yeah, that's the one where as my nephew has gotten into, like, he's not, maybe he's 10 now. um, He's starting to get closer to preteen and then teen where I, that, that how to manage that as a family where he's not my kid either. You know what I mean? but how to, how to navigate that in such a way where I can subtly indicate that there's, you know, this isn't necessarily the best thing to a family that still is kind of militarist, you know? Right. Um, Cause I, 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 I don't, I never wanted to burn to, to end up where I am now, not talking to her, you know? No, so. I mean, you know, that's, that's such a, the, the climate being what it is. I mean, God, the last year and a half have just been, brutal for interactions especially talking anything social or political my god man it's just like navigating a minefield you know Mm -hmm. um i hope beyond hope that you know you and i know you will find a way to navigate through that and i'm i'm pulling for you buddy um that being said we've gone about an hour and a half yeah yeah. (laughs) this has been an awesome awesome interview man um how can people find you um, the best is that I'm, I'm overly active on Twitter at MDVet4, MarylandVet4. Uh, I was going for MarylandVet for peace, and I didn't know Twitter at all. <laughs> like, at all when I started it just over a year, like last December is when I started it. And uh, it's a confusing uh, handle because the people are like, what is the MD, you know? And yeah. then the number four, what's he for? Yeah. <laughs> like it's supposed to be four piece, but so <laughs> at MD vet four is my handle. And also a much easier one uh, that, you know, a year later when I created my podcast at anti-war podcast, really easy one to find. If you are interested in contributing to my little book project um, or, um, or being on the podcast, email me anti-war podcast at Gmail, or I have a secure line anti-war podcast at protonmail.com. If you kind of want to keep things more private or be anonymous, we can accommodate that. Right. And um, if you're inter- if you're in Maryland or anywhere really, and you're interested in defend the guard, um, 
go defend the guard Maryland at gmail.com is my uh, defend the guard email account. I try to keep them binned so I know so I can stay on a task. Um, so yeah, there's please, please, please feel free to contact me. Uh, Twitter or email is best. And uh, check out my pod if you get a chance. Uh, I will have new episodes soon. Well, big time endorsed from the Clean Libertarian podcast. Scott, keep up the good work, buddy. I appreciate all you do. Thanks a lot. All right, man. We'll see you later, buddy. All right. And there you have it. Thanks a lot to Scott for coming on and talking to us. Uh, Absolutely reach out to the guy. Scott is one of those people who is very approachable, uh, just an all-around great guy to talk to. And if you have something that could contribute to not only his podcast, but also wanting to collect those stories and compile those, absolutely reach out to the man. Um, I have no doubt whatsoever that that project is going to be successful and it's going to be a big thing. So uh, once again, thanks a lot, Scott. And um, just going to end it with, oh, there is one thing I need to bring up. Uh, We got one week left on the Narcan drive. So I think we're up to around $600 right now, which is a huge, huge accomplishment. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we can get a little bit more in at least and, and hand it over to shots. But uh, if you have not donated yet and you would like to, please reach out to me both on you know either Twitter or Facebook or however you find me. Anchor even has a voicemail option. So if you only know to reach me you know through the podcast, Look me up on Anchor FM, drop me a voicemail, and uh, we will figure it out from there. But anyways, uh, going to segue into the song of the day, and there is no better song that I could think of to couple with this interview than Anti-Flag, Die for Your Government. Uh, instantly, if you know this song, you already know why I picked it, but if you don't know this song, once you listen to it, you'll know exactly what's going on so uh without further ado here is anti-flag die for your government you gotta die gotta die gotta die for your government die for your country that shit you You gotta gotta die gotta die gotta die for your government die for your country that shit